Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that the only way that we are able to stand against the forces of darkness is to stand on Your promises. We do that because of Your grace. We commemorate that grace now in giving, not from a sense of compulsion, but from a sense of great gratitude. And we do this to the King of kings and Lord of lords, even Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, the first thing I want to say is, we do we love you. <laughs> and, we are <laughs> and we are very fortunate to have you. And we... <laughs> uh, we we uh, have in the bulletin someone that might be able to uh, help back up uh, the pianist uh, because sometimes we're just not able to be here, health reasons and so forth. Uh, also, you may have noticed that there is a CBC suggested reading list that was in your uh, bulletin. And if you don't have one, I think we ran out. I'll make more and just put them in the library back there. Um, these are just some of, some of my favorite books. It's, it's, I try to get them all on one page, but they're uh, listed according to category. At the top, you'll see a little uh, asterisk. It says uh, free right above salvation. Those are the books that are free. Down at the bottom are magazines and newsletters. And you'll notice the Berean Call is free. You can just get on the BereanCall.org and get on the mailing list. It's also on, each issue is on the website. Israel My Glory usually is, there's a cost for that one, but in the library right now there's a sign-up sheet where if you give your name and address and we can get 12 people to give their name and address that they want to receive Israel My Glory, it's free. So you might check that out in the library. We go to God the Father, straight to God the Father, in order to have our post-salvation sins forgiven. And there are problems that arise when people don't do that. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I have been with a loose girl. And this was Joey, by the way. The priest asked, Is that you, little Joey Pagano? Yes, Father, it is. And who was that girl you were with? I can't tell you, Father. I don't want to ruin her reputation. Well, Joy, I'm sure to find out her name sooner or later, so you might as well tell me now. Was it that Tina Minetti? I cannot say. Was it Teresa Mazzarelli? I'll never talk. Was it Nina Capelli? I'm sorry, but I cannot name her. Was it Kathy Perano? My lips are sealed. Was it Rosa D'Angelo? Please, Father, I cannot tell you. The priest sighs in frustration. You've been very tight-lipped, and I admire that. But you have sinned and have to atone. You cannot be an altar boy for four months. Now go and behave yourself. Joey walks back to his pew, and his 
friend, Franco, slides over and whispers, What did you get? Joey says, Four months vacation and five good leads. <laughs> See, we have to do the right thing in the right way, don't we? Okay, now that we've gone through that, let's go directly to God the Father and clear the decks. If there's any unconfessed sins lurking about, we simply name them privately to God the Father, which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our great and mighty God and that you are always there with us. We don't have to make an appointment. We don't have to worry about a busy signal. You are full of grace and mercy and you use prepared believers. We are here to feed upon your word so that we can be prepared for all of the exigencies that, that are certainly coming our way that we will be able to rise above the mundane, uh, apathetic attitudes of so many believers, and that we'll rise to the occasion because we have been trained, we have been prepared, and we will watch you do great and mighty things for us. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you're open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. You will remember that Joshua had fought a great battle and yet he needed some supernatural help from God, and he received it. And Joshua was a great military leader. He was a great believer because he was prepared. He claimed the promises of God. And we are not unlike Joshua in the sense that he was constantly being tested. He had one battle after another, which pretty much describes our own personal lives. We're living on... Uh, this planet, which is enemy territory at the time being, and it's constantly trying to uh, crack into your uh, soul, into the command post, and ruin your contentment and happiness. Constantly we are under a barrage of attack, and our only defense against these forces of spiritual darkness is the Bible doctrine that we have circulating in our stream of consciousness. I'm going to put a slide that we had last time to show you what I'm talking about. We want to go through life with an RMA, don't we? A relaxed mental attitude. There may be someone in this group right now that is struggling with that because of an issue. We all have 
issues, don't we? But God doesn't want us to concentrate on the issues. He wants us to concentrate on Him. So as you see up on the board, we have um, all of these adversities that are trying to get into your soul in here where you live. You have a doctrinal shield surrounding that if you have positive volition, you are a growing believer, and you are one of those people like Joshua that God can use. Some of the, the doctrines that we have here is rebound. This is what we just accomplished. We have the, God's promises, logistical grace, the raw family honor code, unconditional love, the essence box, faith rest, X plus Y plus Z. Those are just a few of the doctrines that surround our soul and protect it from all of these attacks. Now, these attacks, attacks are inevitable. You're not going to get away from them. So if you have the idea that huh, maybe next week will be better, maybe I won't have the, all of the horrible things happen to me next week that I did this week, so next week maybe I'll be happy, maybe things will be better. Well, that attitude is one that is missing the whole point. Our contentment and our joy, our happiness, our courage and our Confidence is not based on our circumstances. It's based on the Word of God, and that's what surrounds us. Inside, we have confidence, strength, courage, and happiness. Now, these are inevitable, but this RMA is not. When one of these mechanical breakdowns goes in here, this is just one of them, and pierces this, this isn't inevitable that you're going to have an RMA. But you can protect your soul with that by doing what you're doing now, just consistently taking in God's Word. And when one of those adversities break through into the command post, this is what you have. You have stress inside your soul. And that's what we don't want to happen. Of course, we, we realize when we get into... Uh, this phase, this is the cosmic system that we get involved in. We allow a mental attitude sin to take over our uh, thinking. And when that happens, look at all these mental attitude sins you have here. There's a lot of mental attitude sins. And those are the sins that uh, precipitate the actions that hurt other people, hurt ourselves, and all the rest of it. So I thought I'd throw that up on the screen again to remind you that you have a shield if you will use it. If you will maintain that shield, consistently taking in that Word, it will protect your soul. And you will be thinking divine viewpoint. Okay, I've got adversity. Everybody's got adversity. But the Lord is allowing this to come in my life to strengthen me so that I will use the spiritual assets that He has given me, and that brings Him glory and so forth. One other thing that we didn't get to last time is this next slide. You'll see on your left, the loser. It's all in black and white here. And on the right, you have the winner. It says above this, As a believer, you are a winner or a loser. 
a lukewarm believer is a loser. Revelation chapter 3, verse 16. So just because you're a believer doesn't make you a winner. Yes, you're going to heaven. Yes, you have tremendous uh, spiritual assets, but you can choose not to learn what they are, not to use them, and you're going to wind up being over here. Now, here's some Greek words. But before I get to this, I want you to notice the minus, it all has to do with your volition. The minus over here, you notice is black, goes on this side. The plus, which is red, goes over here on this side. And you'll notice this is a triangle that comes right up to a point. There's no space to sit on that point. You're either going to be on, if you try it, it'd be like sitting on a point, by the way. You're either going to be over here as a winner or you're going to be over here as a loser. This is the way that God sees us. And the Bible uses these Greek words. This is uh, disukos in the Greek, and it means doubting or hesitating. James 1.8, James 4.8 is where that's found. And so there's so many believers that they don't ever know what to do in any given circumstances. They're full of doubt. Uh, they hesitate. They're not decisive. Then again, on the loser side, you have napios, N-E-P-I-O-S. And that's an infant. That's a simple-minded, immature. And that's simply talking about believers who have accepted the gospel, but they never grow up. They stay in spiritual kindergarten their entire life, and they just act spiritually like a little baby. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians is a chapter that you want to read when you are wearing steel-toed boots, if you know what I mean. Then we have sarkikos, S-A-R-K-I-K-O-S, and that is fleshly. We would say carnal. You're either carnal or just, just as in your spiritual life, you're either carnal over this side or you're spiritual over on this side. The fleshly is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. I don't think I spelled disuchos. It's spelled D-I-P-S-U-C-H-C-H-O-S, the double-minded man. That describes the loser. Over here we have the winner, and here are a few um, Greek words that describe that. First of all, we have metakoi, M-E-T-O-C-H-O-I, and it means partakers or participators. And we have Luke chapter 5, verse 7, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. The metakoi are going to be partakers of the great rewards, decorations, and blessings for all eternity. They have the rewards, the crowns, and so forth. It also means participators. It's in Luke 5, 7, and Hebrews 3, 1. Participators, what I think about the, the Medicoi are the people who are out there on the field. They're on the battleground uh, taking care of business. I imagine some of you have watched the Olympics. And I, I was particularly like the volleyball. And the, I, I, the beach volleyball is okay, but I like the more people on there because you can have bigger volleys and... Uh, they stay fresh. They put new people in. But I think of the Medicoi as being the ones out there on the field participating. They're not sitting on the bench. They're out there feeling the exuberance when 
when they have when they win a score, and then uh, they also feel the fatigue and the pain and so forth. Here, the next one is uh, Nikon or Nikon, and it means winner or victory. This is where we get the a form of this verb is Nike. Ever heard that before? It means winner. Revelation 2, 7, 11, 17, 26, uh, 35. Oh, that's, that's 3. Let me, let me give this again. It's all in Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verses 7, 11, 17, and 26. Chapter 3, verse 5, 12, 21, and 7. If you want to find out what the rewards and decorations are, some of them are listed there. And then the last one you have is... Telios, T-E-L-I-O-S, uh, and it means mature or complete. You find that in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 14. Now, here's some good news for you younger people. You don't have to be a senior citizen, which I officially am now, in order to be a mature believer. In fact, there's a, most people, Believers that are mature in age are not mature spiritually. It just means that you have used your time well. You have studied. You consistently taken in God's Word. Your spiritual momentum has taken you forward. And all of those errors that is trying to press in upon your soul, all of those uh, adversities, they don't penetrate because that doctrinal shield is solid. It is firm and it can't penetrate. That's what you have with a mature believer. Okay, that's just some of the things that I wanted to bring up that I wanted to get to last time that I, uh, I wasn't able to. Now, we're in Joshua chapter 10. So let's look at Joshua chapter 10. And we'll start with uh, verse 20. Joshua chapter 10, verse 20. And it came about when Joshua the, and the sons of Israel had finished slaying them. These are all the Canaanites that they were having battle with. They, um, and he's, he finished slaying them with a very great slaughter until they were destroyed. And the survivors who remained of them had entered into the fortified cities. Verse 21. That all the people that would be the army returned to the camp to Joshua at Mecca in peace. No one uttered a word against any of the sons of Israel. Now, you might underline that. And that is actually a Hebrew idiom, and it means that there were no casualties on the Israelites' part. They didn't have one death, no casualties, with all of this great slaughter that God provided for them. And verse 22 reminds us of something that happened before God made the sun stand still to give the Israelites enough light to finish the job. Verse 22 says, Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring the five kings out to me from the cave. Now, Joshua and it was pursuing the enemy, and there, these are five kings. Turn to verse 1 of this chapter. Remember these kings? These were the kings that had decided to amass their forces and go against 
Israel and the God of Israel. Verse 1, Now it came about when Adonai Zedok, king of Jerusalem. Remember we went over that? That's an odd, odd name. It means Lord of Righteousness, and it's talking about a pagan king. So when Adonai Zadok, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and and where their land that he feared greatly because of Gibeon. Gibeonites were Canaanites that had turned. They believed in the God of Israel and they joined Israel. Even though they did it by lying and cheating, they still became part of Israel. And then it talks about um, the royal cities. And he down a little further, it talks about the five kings. Look at verse 5. So the five kings of the, of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, it gives all these kings. These five kings had banded together to wipe out the Jews. Now, contrary to their plans, they're getting uh, slaughtered, and the kings run into a cave in order to protect themselves. So Joshua found that, the, that these were, was where the uh, five kings were. His men reported to him. He says, okay, just seal it up. We don't have time to deal with it now. Seal it up, and after we finish uh, annihilating the armies, we'll go back and deal with it. And so that's what they're doing in verse um, in verse 22. They're going back to the cave now, and they, they're taking the barrier away. And verse 23. And they did so and brought these five kings out to him from the caves, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. Now, verse 24, I want you to put a circle around verse 24 and a star. And we're not very generous with our stars. Stars only go on rare verses. Now, this doesn't look like a rare verse, but let me tell you, it is very significant. Verse 24, And it came about when they brought these kings out to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near near and put their feet on their necks. Now, for for a person who's just reading through, through the Bible, they would probably read that and just press right on, Right? We wouldn't, isn't that what you would do? This is a spectacular verse, as I'm going to point out. This wasn't just some kind of odd, quirky thing that Joshua would have his men do. Five kings that went against him, he brought out of the cave, and his, his officers, he said, okay, I want you to put your foot on the necks of these officers. Now, I have some verses up here that I have in large enough font so that you will be able to uh, to see it. Because this is so significant, God is giving us a message through His Word, just as Joshua was trying to train and teach his men something by doing this somewhat odd thing. God is giving us a profound message that we need to learn. 
And we're going to start it. Now, you can turn to these verses if you want to, but I have them all on the board here. Uh, Joshua chapter 3 verse, um, excuse me, Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. We start out seeing this thing about uh, the head or neck area. And, and, and this is, by the way, Joshua, uh, Genesis 3.15 is the first time in the Bible that there is a promise that there's going to be a Savior. Is that working over there? Okay. Um, Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you, that would be Satan, and the woman, representing Israel, and between your seed, that would come in from Satan, would be Antichrist, and her seed, which would be Jesus Christ. This is the only place in the Bible that I'm aware of where it's talking about the seed and have it referencing the woman. It's always referencing the man, except for here. And of course, it's easy to understand why, because Christ didn't have a human father. He was born of a virgin. So it says, and her seed. So there's going to be um, enmity. There's going to be strife between the seed of Satan, which is Antichrist, and, and the seed of the woman, which was Mary, which is Jesus Christ. He shall bruise you on the head. This is he, Jesus Christ, shall bruise Satan on the head. In that sense, he's talking about a, a, a fatal wound. And as we're going to see, when I hear this, you will crush his head, I think of Christ's foot being on the head of Satan. That would be a fatal wound. And you, that would be Satan, shall bruise him on the heel. And that would be the cross. Satan got his licks in on the cross, but it certainly wasn't fatal. Christ did suffer on the cross, and it was, talked here, it was referred to here as a bruise. But this sets up the idea to start with that there is a battle and that we already have... You don't have to go all the way to Revelation to find out who wins. We have it already right here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Christ, the seed of the woman, is going to crush the head of Satan. Satan will be tossed into the lake of fire. And he, will, he, he himself, though, in order to purchase our salvation, was bruised on the heel. Now, in Psalm 101, I've got this on your, uh, in red on the screen for you. Uh, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Think of that. Again, we have the imagery of a foot, the enemies as a footstool, similar to what Joshua had his officers do, put his head, hit their foot on the neck or the head area of the enemies. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is talking about in Hebrews chapter 1, you have a comparison of Jesus Christ who is God incarnate, comparing him to angels and say, and so he says, which one of the angels did, did he ever say this to? Did God the Father say it? Well, he never said it to any angels. It was unique to Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 13. But he, Jesus Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. Do you, have, do you understand that? One sacrifice for all time. 
So when your Catholic friends say they're going to Mass, and actually the official term is the sacrifice of the Mass, you can keep this in mind and that the Bible says he was sacrificed one time. One sacrifice for all time. And then he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time on until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Now, in the Bible, if you have a phrase or a a part of a verse that is repeated, it, it means you better take note. If it's repeated twice, it's significant. If it's repeated three times, really trying to get a point across. Now, we already see in red, one, two, three. We've already seen it four times. You go to Acts chapter 2, verse 34 and 35. The Lord said to my Lord, that would be God the Father said to my Lord, which is Jesus Christ. This is quoted from something that David said. And the Lord said this as well. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You see how many times? This is the fourth time. You go to Luke chapter 20, verse 42 through 43. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So we have one, two, three, four. That's five times already that we have this phrase given. And do you see how it parallels what Joshua was doing when he had the enemies of Israel? They had to bow down. I'm going to show you some PowerPoints in just a moment to show you what that looked like. They had to bow down with their face to the ground. And then Joshua instructed his men, now go over there and put your foot on their neck. What were they doing? They were using the enemy as a footstool. See, This is a quote from... uh, Detroit Baptist Journal came out in 2005. Quote, The metaphor of a footstool is most likely taken from the custom of the ancient Near East in which a victorious king placed his foot on the necks of his conquered foes. It indicates the complete subjugation of those who have been defeated to those who have overcome them. So this, this was a common occurrence in the ancient world. I'll show you what that looks like. Here's a relief. This is carved out in stone over in the uh, Near East. And I don't know if you can see it that well, but I've got a sketch of it in the next slide. This is a king... He has a bow in this hand and a spear. And this is this guy down here laying on, you know, prostrate here with the foot on the neck. That's what it looks like. Here's the enemy. King has his foot on the neck. I'll go back. Maybe you can see it a little better. Here's the enemy down here, the foot on the neck. Now, this is, uh, I had this in one of my illustrated dictionaries. I like it except here's the enemy. This is Joshua, and he's instructing his officers to put his foot on the neck. But I don't think they were laying on their back. I think it is as 
it shows in the release of way back there, I think they would bow down and put their head to the ground and they would go up behind them and put their foot on their neck. But again, it kind of gives you an idea uh, what this might look like, what was happening. Use them for footstools. All right, now, not only is this significant, we saw it quoted five times about making the enemy a footstool. We saw that already. But it's even bigger than that because most of you know that I taught a series a while back that was, uh, the name of it was God's Message in the Stars. Well, this same message is given in the stars, and I'm going to show you just a little sampling of that. I have to set it up first because some of you might not know what I'm talking about. Um, There's an invisible circle that goes around the earth, and it's called the ecliptic. Here it is right here. Don't worry about all these other things. I just want you to see this is the ecliptic. It appears that the, the sun, the moon, and all the planets stay in that arc across the sky. It's called the ecliptic. It's an orbit. All the celestial, not the stars, but the planets, the sun, moon, and so forth, all are in there. From our perspective, it goes from the east over here to the west. And where I'm showing this, if you went out in the night sky tonight, that's where it is, right there. I've seen people go out, and I can tell in an instant that they don't know anything about astronomy because they're looking for a planet, and they're not looking in that arc. They're overlooking out the north and over this way. It's not there. Now, the reason that's significant, because this is what it looks like. Here's the earth, and let's say that this circle right here is the ecliptic. Now, there are constellations that fall on that particular band. And it's called the zodiac, and it's also called uh, the, uh, the, the zodiac and the ecliptic are the same thing. It's that arc that goes through. And the constellations that fall on that ecliptic are called the zodiac. You heard of the 12 signs of the zodiac? Well, it is the star constellations that fall on that orbit that's called the ecliptic, but it's also called the zodiac. And here they are right here. Now, don't think that I'm going to get into astrology. There's a big difference between astrology and astronomy. Astrology is the perversion of God's message in the stars. From, if this is earth, it appears from our perspective that these constellations move around us. And every month, a new one moves into sight. Are you all with me so far? Okay. That's the way it appears, and that's the way this is set up. But actually, the the stars and these constellations aren't moving around us. From our perspective, it looks like it. Right now, if you go out in, or tonight, if you go out and look in the uh, towards the south, you'll see um, Scorpio, and you'll see Sagittarius, and you'll see Libra, which are here is. Scorpio, Sagittarius, and uh, here's Libra. Anyway, now, I gave you what it appears is happening, but that's not what's really happening. Stick with me for just a moment now. First constellation in this message in the star, in the stars, 
is Virgo right here. And in reality, these aren't going around us. Take just for so point of illustration, let's say that this isn't the sun, uh, the earth now, but it's the sun. Just pretend that that's the sun in this illustration for a moment. This dot is the earth, that red dot. And what's actually happening is the earth makes an orbit around the sun like this, and as we travel around the sun, we come into contact with each one of these constellations. It takes a full year for us to get around to here, back where we were. We see all the constellations. That's what's really happening. When we're over here, we don't see these constellations. You see what I'm talking about? Now, if you think that I'm wacko by now, a lot of people think, oh, yeah, he's just astrology nut. No. Look at this, what it says in Job 38:32. Can you bring out Masroth in its season, or can you guide the great bear and its cubs? Uh, the great bear isn't even in this ecliptic, in the zodiac, or in the Masroth. The Masroth is just another name for this band that goes around the sky. I have a definition here. The Masroth is 12 signs of the zodiac, and there are 36 associated constellations. It sounds kind of like a science class, and everybody's still awake. That's good. 36. See, each constellation has three other constellations within a 10-degree area that are associated with, with each constellation. They're called decans, D-E-C-A-N-S. And in God's message in the stars, which starts, by the way, with Virgo, which represents what? The virgin. Christ was born of a virgin. The whole message goes all the way. It's really an act in three parts. By the time you get around to the end, the last one is Leo, which is the lion. And Christ is the... Lion of Judah. Anyway, it's pretty interesting, but I don't want to get too deep into it right now. And these three constellations that are associated with each one of these have a, have a part to play in his overall message. Would you like to hear that sometime? Okay. Maybe when we're through with Joshua. Okay. Now, here's where it gets good. Back, I'm going to show you about the foot on the neck and so forth. Here is the ecliptic, the zodiac, or the Maseroth. There's the ark in the sky. And this is drawn out the figures of what these constellations represent. Now, sometimes they actually re they look much like what the um, name of the constellation is. For instance, this is Scorpio, and it means the scorpion. And uh, if, if I could just snap my fingers and we could go out right now tonight, and it's a clear night, I could show you. It's going to be right over in that area. And it looks like a big kind of a lazy S. And here's the stinger on the, sky, on the tail. And it looks like this, like a scorpion. Now, what do you suppose the scorpion represents? Satan, right. So here you have Scorpio, which is the, represents Satan, and this guy is called Ophiuchus. And Ophiuchus means the snake handler. 
Here you have the snake. He's handling a snake going up like this. And where is his foot? On the neck of the scorpion. Here's another view of it. Here's Ophiuchus. Here is his foot on the scorpion. Here's the snake. And look at this. The snake is reaching up for the corona borealis, the crown. The snake is reaching up for the crown. You can see it better on this one. Here you have Ophiuchus. He's handling the snake. Here's the snake. The, the snake is the constellation called Serpents, the serpent. He's got his foot on here. He's handling the snake, and the snake is up here reaching for the crown, which is Corona Borealis. Now, this last one will show you even more. Well, this isn't the last one, but it'll kind of give you an idea. This is the constellation Draco, and it stands for dragon. Now, just, just thank you, George. You can turn them all off. Does that help? Okay, turn them all off. Turn these off, too, over on the side. There you go. Hey, it does. That doesn't help, doesn't it? Okay, here you have Draco. Now, you're saying, why am I showing the dragon? Just hold on a second, and I'll show you. You can see kind of like a dragon right here. Here's Ursa Minor, which is a little dipper. And here is what the dragon would look like. You can kind of uh, visualize what the dragon would look like. What do you think the dragon represents? Or who? Satan, again, right, okay? Now, here's the snake. This is, remember what we're looking here? Here's the head of the snake reaching up for the crown, which is Corona Borealis. Here you have Hercules. Here is Hercules' foot, and here's the head of the dragon. Here's another way to see it. Here's Ophiuchus holding the... The snake handler holding the serpent. His foot is on the head of the scorpion. It's reaching up for the crown. Here you have Hercules. His foot is on the head of the dragon. And look at this. He's got a batch of snakes here. It looks like he's fixing the club with that. Do you see what I'm talking about? Even in the stars. Now, if I had more time, I could show you even more examples of this. But God is even giving us a message in, his star, in the stars that God has made the enemy of His children just the same as He had for Christ. The enemies have been made a footstool for the foot of Christ. God will do the same thing with our enemies if we trust Him to do it. Okay, turn all the lights back on, George. Some of y'all's mouth are hanging open. So when I'm trying to make a, I'm trying to show that this is a big deal with regards to what Joshua was doing. Now, here are some verses that will underscore this. There's more. Look at all these verses. You'd be, you had no idea that all this was in here. I don't think you did. I didn't know until I did this in-depth study about this foot on the neck or the head of the enemies. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. And He, God the Father, put all things under His feet, Christ's feet, and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church. And this is an example of Christ being over all things of the church. And the context here 
It's as the husband is in marriage. This is in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 through 20. In Romans chapter 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And I've got a little note here. We can all be of good cheer. We are in the war, but we don't have to fret because Satan's days are numbered. He's going to be our footstool. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. Now, this one's an important one. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you can know. Now, this is in verse 18. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. Now, Paul is praying that these Ephesians would be enlightened so that they may know something. What is it that God wants them to know? Verse 19. What is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. We're talking about God's power and it being available to us. Psalm chapter 44, verse 5 through 7. Though, And you'll notice the, the you, the things I have in blue here is referring to God. Through you, we will push back our adversaries. Through your name, we will trample down those who rise up against us. Feet, trample. Same idea. For I will not trust in my bow nor in my sword to save me, to deliver me, but you have saved us, delivered us from our adversaries, and you have put to shame those who hate us. This is what is available to us from our mighty God. Then we have Psalm 91, verses 10 through 13. Promise, no evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For He will give, God will give, His angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion. Tread, feet over them. Tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample down. What do you trample with? Feet over the enemy. Psalm chapter 60, verse 12, and Psalm 108, 14. Through God we shall do valiantly, and it is He who will tread down our adversaries. Psalm 91, 14 through 16. Now, I don't want to see anybody going to sleep. I don't see anybody going to sleep. But sometimes when I start reading verse after verse, people kind of start going, they start wilting. This isn't a time to wilt. We're going for the gold. Those guys are in a, I don't know, gazillion meter race, and they're out there, and they're running. They're getting kind of close to the end. You don't want to wilt. These verses are for us. Here I am. Uh, it sounds like I'm fussing at you, and nobody's even asleep. It's just a warning. <laughs> Psalm 91, verses 14 through 16. Because He has loved me, therefore I will deliver Him. Now see, this is the He is the believer. Because the believer has loved me, this is God speaking, Therefore, I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He knows something. He knows my person. He's been, he's been 
maturing spiritually. He will call upon me and I will answer him. Does that kind of help you remember? Isaiah, I mean, uh, Je- uh, Jeremiah, uh, Joshua, excuse me. Joshua chapter 10. Isn't that what Joshua did? He called on God and God answered him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. Look at this. This is to the one who loves God, the one who knows something. He said, this is a promise. I will deliver. I will set him securely. I will answer. I will be with him. I will rescue. I will satisfy. He does all that, even to the point to where he allows us to do what Joshua is telling his officers to do. Go over there and put their foot on the neck of the enemy. What a great God do we have. What a powerful, omnipotent God do we have. God will do all of these things for the believer who seeks Him and who is hungry for His Word. When we know Him, love Him, and call upon Him, He delivers and empowers us and gives us the victory over adversities and over our enemies. He gives us the victory, even our greatest enemy, which is death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56 and 57. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Verse 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, even to the point to where they are so utterly defeated, we can go over and put our foot on their neck figuratively. Yes, Joshua had his warriors put their foot on the neck of their enemies so that they would know that they had nothing to fear. God was on their side. It was recorded in the Bible. So we will know this as well. I wish I had more time, but I'm out of time. But I want you to, I want you to think about these things. I want you to not have any fear. Our God is more powerful than any any force in the universe. He created the universe. And He wants us not to fear. He wants us to trust Him. Sometimes I know you get into areas where you feel so helpless, you feel so sometimes defeated. You want so earnestly for that pain and that suffering and that anxiety and that adversity and all this just to go away. And you, you might start questioning, well, where is God? I don't feel like He's putting His foot on the neck of my enemy. Do you ever, did any of y'all ever feel that way? God answers that in one word. Can you figure out what the word is? It starts with a W. Wait. Oh, man, I don't want to wait. Do you want to wait? Why does God make us wait? Because He's trying to teach us something. He's trying to teach us to trust Him in everything. To faith, we might say, He's trying to teach us to faith rest. And we learn over that period of waiting. See, I don't like to be in limbo, do you? You see these athletes, 
you see the gymnastics and all these different sports, and they're all standing looking up at the scoreboard. They're trying to find out, are they going to have victory or not? And if you talk to them, they say that is the most agonizing period there is, is to stand there and you're just waiting. It might only be a minute or two, but it seems like an eternity while you're waiting in that limbo. One thing is for absolute certain. God is all-powerful. He's already promised Christ that He will make His enemies His footstool. And what is Christ doing right now, by the way? Waiting. He's waiting. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. So that's what we do. We wait and we have confidence that our God is going to deliver us and that the enemy will soon be under our feet. Let's bow our heads. There may be someone here. There may be someone on the Internet. That fears death. They try to shove it away. They try not to think about it, but it keeps popping up from time to time. That old enemy death will be one of the last things to be conquered experientially. Christ already conquered it on the cross. The good news is that you don't have to work in order to go to heaven in order to stay out of hell. Like everything else that God gives us, it's based on His grace, and it's a gift. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. And any person that hears my voice at this point has the opportunity, has the option of simply accepting Christ's atonement on the cross for their sins. And when they do, they're born again. Nothing can take that away from them. Someday they'll spend eternity with all other believers, with Christ in heaven. You don't have to walk an aisle, raise your hand, say anything. God already knows what you're thinking. In that moment that you say, this is it. I'm believing in Jesus Christ. He is going to be the one that gives me victory over the things that I have no power over. And in that moment... You become a child of God, a raw family member, and that never changes. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your mighty word, how it reaches in and gives us courage and confidence. We are so weak and you are so strong. The message is to trust and wait. We pray that you will help us to endeavor to do exactly that, for we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.